All right, good morning. Here we go. This is going to be a, a wild and woolly morning. We're going to cover, as we did last week, a lot of territory. And um, we're going to go over familiar territory because we're going to cover, I say cover, we're going to uh, go over the 10 plagues, but we're going to do it from a really uh, kind of interesting, different uh, standpoint. So if you're expecting me to unpack every one of the 10 plagues, it ain't going to happen. Uh, if you want to go dig into detail, you can read the devotionary I wrote on that. So uh, that's my fallback. Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of take a different view of this, and I think it's really important. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're, we're going to dig into this this morning. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for the cooler weather, for the rain we got. I pray, Father, that you would continue to bring uh, lower temperatures. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness, your grace that you show us each and every day in so many different ways. I thank you for these men for their uh, faithfulness to show up each Tuesday morning and to listen to me as I hope I'm unpacking your word accurately. And I pray that today that would, would be true and that you would use uh, this lesson to drive us closer to you, that we would see you as you truly are, a powerful, all-sovereign God who's still working today just as you did in the days of Moses. So Father, we give you this morning and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so last Thursday night, after I finished teaching on the Fort Worth campus, a young man came up to me and he said, so next week we're going to do the 10 plagues, right? And I said, yes. And he goes, and he, he just like lit up and he goes, oh, that's great. And he starts going through the 10 plagues and he goes, so there was the blood, which wasn't really blood. It was algae that turned the water red, which looked like blood, but it was really just algae, which killed the fish because it took away all the oxygen, which forced all the frogs to leave the land, the Nile and go into the land and they proliferated and then they died because they have short time. And he starts going through the scenario where every one of the plagues was just a natural event that resulted in another natural event all the way to the point of, you know, the, the firstborn who died because they were the firstborn and they were revered in their household. They were given the best grain. Well, the grain was rotten. And, and he, I mean, he just went through this whole thing verbatim. And I was driving home and I went, that's nuts. Um, I didn't say it to him, but, and I thought, how many other guys have that same view? Maybe not quite as in detail as he had it, but, but my fear is that many of us approach the scriptures that way. And so what we're going to do today is kind of unpack, how, how did we get there? How is that even a factor for us? Because when you read these stories, you don't see the people going, well, that's not blood, that's algae. You know, they don't rationalize. They don't try to write it off as something other than what it really is. It, it, they see it as supernatural. They see it as something out of the ordinary. Now, in these 10 plagues, we're going to see there was hail. I've seen hail. I've had hail destroy my roof on my home multiple times. I, I know what hail can do. Um, we, we see things happening that we see in nature. But what we're seeing in this, this passage is just not normal, natural nature occurrences. And, and to me, that's really important. So before we dig into this, I, I want to look at the 10 plagues, but I want to look at them through a different lens. See, these biblical events that we're very familiar with have been dis disputed, debated, argued about for centuries. And, and men have wrestled with, well, are these real? Are they, these myths? Are, are they true but kind of figments of man's imagination that they've just kind of conjured up into something greater than what it really is. 
This has been going on for forever, and it's caused doubt. It's called all kinds of disassociation from the scriptures that, you know, we can't really believe these things happen. They're just men's explanation of things they didn't understand because they were unscientific. After all, these things happened centuries ago, millennia ago. And, and so this has been going on for a very, very long time. And yet for us as believers, these stories that we're reading should be proof of God's power. And, and we walk on really thin ice when we start playing fast and loose with these stories and going, well, we're more enlightened. We're smarter now. We know things they didn't know. We, we've had a scientific explosion that's allowed us to go back and look at these things and explain them from rational terms. See, for atheists, they will use a book like Exodus as proof of our stupidity, of religion's stupidity. You believe that stuff? You, or Genesis, we saw that in Genesis, that you really believe that God created the earth in seven days? What, what stupidity? That's, that's ignorant. That's, how can you believe that? That's backwards. It's unscientific. And so these two books, Genesis and Exodus, in particular, all the Bible has been criticized, but these two books have been used to basically dismiss our belief system. And the danger is we buy into it whether we know it or not, realize it or not, we buy into these things, but it hasn't always been that way. And so we're going to do a, a little brief history lesson, but not a biblical history lesson, a, a history lesson of, of human history. So the supernatural has always been believed in. It, it's, it's been there from day one. It's been there since creation that man has believed in the supernatural, that there's something else out there. Uh, something that we can't explain, and yet we try all the time to explain it. So if we go back to the 16th and 17th centuries, there, there's some things going on where this all began to happen, and it moved all the way into the 18th century. There used to be a widespread belief in the supernatural. Nobody would argue it. They, they might, may not have attributed it to Yahweh, our God, but they would attribute it to some God or some being some outside source that was doing these amazing, amazing things that they were saying. That's the reason you have gods. That's the reason you have deities that they are trying to use to explain the inexplicable. So they come up with all these gods to explain the stars, the sun, the moon, the tide, whatever it is, they, they, they come up with that. But it used to be that people embraced the miraculous. They believed that miracles happened. They prayed for miracles. They believed in miracles. When saw, they saw something happen, they would count it as a miracle. Even the miracles of the Bible, and particularly the plagues that we see in Exodus. It, it used to be in a time during the 15th, 16th, and 17th century where people didn't argue about these being acts of God. They were done by God because the scriptures say they were done by God. And yet, what happened? Something changed that. And it's the rise of reason. Now, guys, I don't want you to think at any point in this that I'm against reason. I believe reason is given to us by God, but reason, like anything else given to us by God, can be used as a tool against God. We can get so big for our britches that we we suddenly think we can outthink God and we can know things God doesn't know. And so that's where this becomes dangerous. So in the 17th and 18th century, you have what's called the age of reason, the enlightenment, as most of us know it. This changed everything. 
This was literally a game changer, and it happened over centuries. It didn't happen overnight. It was a slow, steady, progressive change in everything from the social, the religious, to the political landscape. It changed the world, literally changed the world. You, you got to rem remember this is after the Reformation. The Reformation was also a game changer, right? It, it, it relined the, the, the spiritual landscape of the world. And then this comes along as a reaction, really, to the Reformation. And it came alongside the scientific revolution when all the stuff was happening with Galileo, Copernicus, all these guys who were beginning to examine things through a scientific lens. And again, I, I'm not anti-science in the least. I, I love science. But science can become a tool to attack the Scriptures. And we know that to be true because they began to place the natural over the supernatural. Everything is explicable. If it's not explicable, explainable, then it doesn't exist. It's not real. That's kind of the basic conclusion they came to. And that's a dangerous place to get if you're a believer. If you're an atheist, it's fine. But if you believe in God and you go down that path, you're going to end up with a God who is powerless, meaningless, and irrelevant. And that's why this is important. So philosophy, which came out of the kind of the French movement of the Enlightenment, supplants theology. Men began to think. God made us to think, right? We should think. I want you to think. Um, I drive myself crazy because I, I think too much. I, I studied this. I write a blog. And now I've gone in a totally different direction because I've had time to think about it since then. And so God keeps showing me things. But reason is great but it should never supplant and replace theology, the study of God, because that's really what we're all about. We're about the study of God. These, these individuals, these philosophers, these scientists that came along during really the, the, those three centuries of the Enlightenment began to come up with ways to explain away religion, God, theology, and explain man's existence. Who are we? Why are we here? What's going on? And see, everybody wants to know why we're here. Every person who's born eventually comes to a place, well, why, why am I on this planet? What's my purpose? What's my meaning? Well, if you get rid of theology, if you get rid of God, that God placed us here for a reason, that we are made in his image, you will then have to go elsewhere to find out what your purpose is, what your essence is, what your meaning is. And we see that running amok right now where people are, be are beginning to question their own identity in terms of biology because everybody's trying to figure it out scientifically. How many times have we heard recently, just follow the science? Just follow the science. And again, I'm not anti-science, but science and scientists don't have the answer to everything. They're looking for answers, but they don't have the answers to everything. Some of them are so pompous that they think they do, but we know that there's somebody greater than them who has the answers that we go to. But you began to see a shift, a shift away from theology to rationalism, to reason, that we can explain everything, and if we can't explain it, it doesn't matter because it doesn't really exist. And that impacted how theologians interpreted the Bible. You may never have thought about this before, but uh, I printed out an article that's on the table out there. It may not have been there when you came in, but it's called The Rise of Biblical Criticism in the Enlightenment. Uh, I really encourage you to read it because it will, it will explain in greater detail what's going on here. Because as the, as the world goes, too often the church goes. 
when the world, the church sees the world coming up with all these philosophies and all these ideas and rationalism and reason and science, good things, we, we got, start going down that path. And when we go down that path, we turn our back on everything we've been taught and have believed about the word of God. It, it's an easy road to go down. And we begin to question all those things that we've held to be true. And, and so you see, you see these scholars, these theologians who begin to want to embrace the age of reason, the enlightenment, uh, the growth in science, and they begin to look at, is the Bible really reliable? Is it really true? Can we depend upon it? And they begin to dissect the biblical text to death. And they begin to write off certain things, including miracles, that they don't exist. They start eliminating the supernatural events in the Bible because they're inexplicable. I can't explain them, therefore, they must not have really happened or they give them man-made reasons and explanations. See, that young man that, that talked to me on Thursday night, he's read enough, he's smart enough, and he's a brilliant young guy that he's, he's put together his explanation based on science, science and reason of how these events happen, and they don't align with Scripture. And that's the dangerous part. When we begin to allow science, reason, rationalization to determine how we interpret the Bible. And that, that's why, to me, this, is, this has been a, a really a week-long just kind of digging into what, what's really going on. Why would we do that? And it, it became known as historical criticism and really biblical historical criticism where men would go in, men who believe in God, men who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they began to dissect the Scriptures and critique and criticize in great detail, the scriptures to determine what's true and what's not true. You can do that. You know, I, I, and I don't, I don't tell you, hey, don't read the, the, the scriptures with a, a non-discerning mind. Don't turn off your brain and read the scriptures. Read it, ask questions of it, but understand that the answers to the questions you have are there, not out there. Look for the scriptures. Question what you see. Be, be willing to debate with God if you want to, but he will give you the answer. He will show you the truth, but it will be in his word, not outside his word. This, uh, this is a great uh, site. If you ever have questions about the Bible, it's got gotquestions.org. I've, I've looked at it for years and I've never found anything I disagree with. But listen to what they say. There are some people who get so caught up in historical criticism that they view the text of the Bible as nothing but a collection of ancient writings, the mere product of an older, less enlightened culture. See, that's the danger. When you start reading these texts and you go, well, Moses was an old guy. Moses really didn't know much about science. Moses was unenlightened. Moses was ignorant. Moses may have been wise in his day, but he lacks everything we know today. And, and you begin to question what he wrote because after all, he lived a long time ago and he's viewing things from an quote, unenlightened viewpoint. But as Christians, what do we believe about the scriptures? Every one of the books in the Bible. They're inspired by God. They're written by men, but inspired by God. That means they can't be faulty. They can't be false. They can't be half correct. They can't be myth. If God knows everything and we believe he does, and he inspired these men to write what they wrote, they're not full of falsehoods. They're not full of man-made conjurings of this is what I think happened. This is what it looked like to me. No, this is the word of God. And yet we have this flowing into our faith system. 
goes on and says, as a methodology, historical criticism falsely assumes that the Bible is nothing but a collection of man-made writings. This leads to an almost total dismissal of anything supernatural, miraculous, or any divine activity in the world. See, when you go down this road and you begin to critique the Bible in that way, pretty soon you become the arbiter of what's true. You read a passage, it doesn't make sense to you, you can't explain it, and so you write it off. Or you deem it as unimportant. It's just some kind of a oral myth that the Jews had about that particular situation. Or as some have done, they basically say it never happened. There are biblical scholars who say what we read in the book of Exodus never happened. There was no Exodus. Why? Because we can't find any proof in extra biblical text that it ever happened. In other words, the Egyptians didn't write about it and put it in their histories. Why would they? Why would they? What would possess any Egyptian scholar who answers to Pharaoh to write down their greatest failure? No, they, that just gets written out of the books, right? We, we don't tend to write about our greatest failures either. Well, again, if you go down this road, you, you end up in a place we don't want to be where we discount divine activity. So what triggered me on that Thursday night was this young man who comes every Thursday night And it made me begin to question, okay, how do we address this? How do we address these 10 plagues? What do we do with these? Because if we're not careful, they just become natural disasters. They're just things that happen, just a a, a real unfortunate sequence of natural disasters that came upon these people. But that's not what the scriptures say. The Red Sea becomes the Reed Sea. I can't tell you how many commentaries I've read where guys are trying to explain that they didn't really cross the Red Sea, they crossed what's called the Reed Sea, because that word is very similar, and whoever wrote it down just got it mixed up, and it was a very shallow piece of water that they easily walked over. But that's not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say they, they crossed the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry ground, and walls of water were held back by the arms of God. That's what the Scriptures say. And I may not understand that. I've never seen it happen, and I probably never will, but I either believe it or I don't believe it. And if I don't believe it, then I have just basically emasculated my God, which changes everything. See, that's what happens in this, is that we take God and we make him into less than God. We make him into nothing more than just some deity who really doesn't have much power, who doesn't really have much say. And even the things he says in these, these passages aren't really true when he says, I did, or I did, or I will, he really didn't. It was just a natural disaster that he took advantage of. It all becomes just a fairy tale. The Bible becomes irrelevant. And sadly, I think a lot of the the younger generations of of Christianity are are going down that path. And, And sadly, I think there's those of my generation have already gone down that path and have basically discounted what the scriptures say. They've they've basically made it irrelevant in their lives. It doesn't matter. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe there's a heaven and there's a hell, but all this stuff doesn't really matter at the end of the day, but it really does because it totally affects the story of redemption. See, this book, Exodus, is about redemption, and it mirrors our redemption. And if you want to take away the meat of it, then you got to take away the meat of our redemption. Because everything that Jesus says about himself mirrors what happens in Exodus. And he believed in the Exodus story. He spoke of it. He taught on it. 
So if we want to take away and say none of this really happened, there was no exodus, or if there was, it wasn't really miraculous. It was just a series of unfortunate events. No, this was the hand of God. Guess what? So is our redemption. And that's why this is important to me. This is why we're going down this road, because it all goes back to the story of redemption. The Bible is the story of redemption, guys. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's the the story of God's redemption of mankind. And if you want to play fast and loose with the Old Testament, because it's the Old Testament, what does it matter? I'm sorry, guys, but it's connected to the New Testament. You want to play fast and loose here, you're going to end up playing fast and loose over here. You can't have it both ways because you eventually destroy the message of the Bible. And the message of the Bible is whose message? God's message. It's not Moses' message. It's not David's message. It's God's message. Listen to this. Partisans of enlightenment claim that the advance of philosophy would promote an enlightened day of happiness, toleration, and progress. How many times have we been promised that? by, by the, the, the world around us, by the leaders, by the scientists, by the philosophers of our day. If we do this, you will be happy. You will be better off. Everything will go much better for you. Many sharply criticize traditional Christian beliefs such as our sinful nature due to Adam's fall, the reality of miracles, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and the divinity of Christ. They question Scripture's infallibility and endorse biblical criticism. This is happening in 1973, I was a freshman at Baylor University. I was a religion major, and I took my first Old Testament class. And I remember sitting in that class. There were probably 80 kids in that class. I was in the back because I really wasn't interested. And the professor gets up. He's the head of the Old Testament department at the time at Baylor University, good Baptist school. And he stands up and he says, uh, Welcome to my class. He tells us his name, and he says, I just want to set some parameters so you understand where I'm coming from. He said, I know most of you probably grew up in good Southern Baptist homes, Christian homes, but you need to understand that in this class, I do not believe in miracles. I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in the miracles you see in the Old Testament. I don't believe in the creation story. And he went down a list, and I was riveted because I grew up in a pastor's home. And I'm sitting in the back going, what in the heck have I gotten myself into and he just went through everything I believed in and destroyed it. And, and every kid in the room, I was in the back, but if I could have seen their faces, they were like mine. They were like slack-jawed. And, and it's like he enjoyed it. See, that's going on in our, our schools. Sadly, it's going on in our seminaries, that you have professors in some seminaries and many seminaries who don't believe these things, that don't believe in the divinity of Christ. They don't believe in miracles. We've got a seminary right down the freeway in Fort Worth, Texas at a major university that I wouldn't send any child to to learn divinity. It's called a divinity school, but they don't believe the things that we believe because they've gone down this path. They're enlightened. They're they're more reasonable than we are. they, They know more truth than we know. See, Voltaire, who was part of the, the, one of the proponents of this enlightenment period says, the truths of religion are never so well understood as by those who've lost the power of reason. That's a slight guy. That's a slap in the face. Whether you just realized it or not, he's making fun of you. He's saying you, you lack reason because you believe religion. And see, I would, I would argue with him to the death. I, I do have reason. I've been given reason by God, but I've also been given faith. And those two go hand in hand. 
Immanuel Kant said, the main point of enlightenment is man's release from his self-caused immaturity primarily in matters of religion. We're just like children. We'll believe anything. You'll believe the 10 plagues. You'll believe the creation story. You'll believe anything because you're ignorant. You're like a child and you need to be enlightened. But what does the scripture say? Look at verse one of chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. What is God saying? He's saying, now you will see what I will do to who? Pharaoh. God is claiming that everything that comes in the next chapters are by his hand. He's doing these things. They're not just natural disasters. It's just not a bad season for hail. This is, this is the hand of God doing what only the hand of God can do. For he says, for with a strong hand, he will send them out. My hand is going to fall on him, and then he will come to the point, eventually, 10 plagues later, well, he'll send them out by a strong hand. He'll want us to leave. He'll push the Israelites out. But how? By the hand of God. See, this, this, what we read in these passages is the hand of God. And if you go through them, see, we could unpack them. I could take a week on every plague. I really could. And you would know more about the plagues but would you know more about God? Would you understand that your God is great, that your God is all powerful, that your God will and always will do what he only can do? See, nobody else can make this happen except God Almighty. See, we have to be really careful that we don't expunge, that we don't throw out, that we don't toss out what we can't explain. And I know you read passages in scripture, as do I, where I get to them and I go, what do I do with that? And I've never seen it more clearly than, I, guys, every morning I get up and I, I blog my way through the scriptures. I've been doing it for 13 years. And there are mornings that I get up and I see the passage for the day and I go, oh, not this one. What am I going to write on this? And it never fails. By the time I'm done, God has shown me something. I can't just throw it out because I don't want to read that passage. I don't want to read that book. I don't, I don't want to read Leviticus. I don't want to read Ecclesiastes. I don't want to read... No, read it because it comes from God. Just because I can't explain it, don't throw it out. Don't ignore it. See, reason is a gift from God, and it should reveal the truth about God. He wants us to reason. He wants us to think. He wants us to dig. I love it when guys come up to me and, you know, and say things like, man, I'm reading the scriptures more than I ever have before. Or they come up to me or they send me emails and say, man, I got a question about X. Send your questions. I love questions. And I'll tell you if I don't know the answer, but here's what I also will do. I will find the answer. I will look for the answer. And here's the other thing I'll tell you. The answer I give you will be far longer than you wanted to hear. Okay? My emails will run two, three, four pages, but you will have an answer. And then you do with it what you want. But I love when we question because reason is not meant to disprove God. It's meant to help us grow closer to God as we wrestle with these texts. Look at Romans 1. What did Paul say? Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. See, you can be the brightest PhD on the campus, but you will be a fool if you throw out God. If you try to outsmart God, you will lose that battle, just like Pharaoh's going to lose these battles. And yet that's what our world tries to do. So God says, I'm going to show you what I will do. Over and over again, in this book, God says, so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know. Know what? Know me. Know me how? That I'm, I'm God Almighty. 
I'm Jehovah, I'm Yahweh, I am the one who is and who always will be, that's me, and I'm going to show you through action. And eventually, by the end of the story, guess who's going to know who God is? Even Pharaoh himself. But every Israelite's going to know he really is who he says he is, that he is all-powerful. This book is literally a primer on the omnipotence of God. And yet what we do is we just emasculate it. We take all of that out and we just go, oh, it was just this. Oh, it was just that. They didn't really cross over dry land and God held back the waters because that's impossible. Guess what? Everything in this book is impossible. Your salvation is impossible. Your righteousness is impossible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity taken on human form is impossible, but he either did it or he didn't. And if he didn't, why are we here? It's impossible. So why do we wrestle with certain things and we don't wrestle with others? It's because we've allowed the world to influence our thinking. And God in these passages over and over again demonstrates his power in incredible ways over creation because most of these things have to do with creation, right? Who made creation? God. What can God do with creation? Anything he wants. The end of the story tells me, the book of Revelation, he's going to remake everything. The guy who made it is going to destroy it and make it again. Why? Because he can. And because it's flawed and it's marred by sin. So he's going to show power over creation, over earthly kings, over kingdoms, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, over all the false gods of the Egyptians, over the prince of this world. Because we said last week, who's behind all of this? Satan. This is, a, this is a spiritual battle, guys. This is God going toe-to-toe, man-to-man against Satan because this is his realm. He's the prince of this world. And God is showing the Israelites, no, this is my world. I, I've given him partial control of it, but ultimately I control it. And he's also going to show his power to the Israelites in ways that they never have seen it before. Verse six says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I can't tell you how many times you see those two words. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is what I am and I will. This is what I'm gonna do. And yet we'll go back and go, yeah, but it was just, it was just algae. It wasn't really blood, it was algae. No, what did he say? I will, I will. Now you could say, well, he just used algae, but that's not what the passage says. It over and over again, says the water turned to blood, literal blood. It didn't turn to algae, which looked like blood. That, that'd be a neat parlor trick for God to do, but is God incapable of turning water into blood? No, because he made water. He can do with water anything he wants. And so we have to keep remembering that this is all a picture of God's power. Verse seven, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is. You will know when I'm done, when I finish doing what I'm doing, you will know beyond certainty that I am Yahweh, Jehovah, the all being God, the God who always has been and always will be. I'm the one. And I love how he says, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians? He's talking as if it's already happened. Has it happened yet? No, they still got to go through 10 plagues and a lot of trouble. And he's going, guys, I will, and it's as good as done. 
because that's who I am. Again, I will, I will, I will. And when you see me work, you will know that I'm the Lord. See, I want us to read these passages, and when we're done, we go, man, what an incredible God we worship. Not what a, what a remarkable story. That's fascinating that those things happened way back then. No, those kind of things can still happen now. I'm not telling you God's going to turn the water of the Brazos into blood, guys. Um, it's probably just as polluted as it is. That's not the point. The point is, is your God supernatural above nature? Is your God greater than nature? Is your God so capable that he could do anything he wants? Is he that kind of a God? See, he goes on and says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to do what I said I would do centuries earlier. I'm going to fulfill my promise. That's the kind of God I am. I will. I will give it to you for a possession. See, they've been living in the land of Egypt for over 400 years now, and they've gotten comfortable there. We talked about that. And he's going to have to make them uncomfortable so he can get them to let go of it so he can take them where they really long to be. But he says, I will, I will, I will. But I love this. Moses tells all this to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their spirit was broken and because of the harsh slavery. See, when Moses showed up into town, we looked at this briefly last week, he shows up, he tells them everything God said to do. He does a few uh, miracles in front of them and they worship. And then it gets worse because Pharaoh just turns up the heat. Okay, you're gonna make bricks without straw now. I'm gonna persecute you even more. And they got mad at Moses who then got mad at God. And now he delivers this message and they, they go, listen, we've heard your story. We're not listening to you anymore and they're broken in spirit. They're beaten down. They, they can't take anymore. They don't know what to do. You know, we don't understand how bad it is for these people. We, we read these stories, and we don't really think about, what if I were there? I always like to read the scriptures and go, what if I was in their sandals? What if I was going in that room with them when all of this stuff was happening? What if I had to live under that kind of torment? What would my attitude be towards God? I know what I'm like when my car breaks down. Yeah, I know what it's like when I get pretty angry when just the silliest thing happens in my life, and I've never been through anything like this. See, they couldn't see God in their circumstance. And I know some of you are there right now. You're going through something. I don't know what it is, but you, you just can't. There's no way God's in this. There's no way anything good can, can come out of this. And you get demoralized. You get defeated. You get disappointed in God. You get disincentivized. You, you, you no longer have, you, I don't want to read my Bible. I, I don't want to go to church. I, I don't want to pray to God because I pray to God and he doesn't answer my prayers. And, and so you, you become like them. You've been beaten down and defeated. And yet the reason we read these stories is so that we might be reminded that our God will. He can, he will. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. These people needed to see su something supernatural. They didn't need to see a natural occurrence, right? Hey, look, it's hailing. Oh, yeah. You know, no, they needed to see something pretty phenomenal. There's that red algae again. Don't drink the water. No, they needed to see something supernatural. Why? Because they've been worshiping false gods for centuries and have never seen those gods do squat. Why? Because they can't, because they don't exist. They need to see the supernatural, and the supernatural can only come from one source that I know of, and that's God Almighty. So the Lord says to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And I would love to have seen his face. 
Oh, are you kidding me? I've already gone. He doesn't listen. He's not going to listen to me now. And he argues with God again, right? Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. This is a gross description, guys. If you know what circumcision is, Cody was afraid to describe it in his sermon. I'm not, because you're guys. If you've never been circumcised, I don't recommend it, okay? But it's the cutting off of the foreskin, right? Not a pleasant experience. And he, he, he literally describes this, I, I've got uncircumcised lips. It's as if, as if I've got too much skin in my lips. I can't speak well. It's not necessarily a reference to his heart. It's like, I, I'm, I'm ill-equipped for this. This has been his argument all along, right? I, I can't talk well. I don't think well in front of people. This it ain't working. But the Lord goes, no. He says to Moses and Aaron, and he gives them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh the king to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And guys, this is gonna set up the 10 plagues. This poor guy and his brother are gonna have to go in and continue their debate with Pharaoh to try to get him to let the people go. And so far it hadn't gone well. And guess what? If you've read ahead or you've seen the movie, it continues to not go well. But God's not done. What's the goal? Bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. How is God going to do it? Through these 10 plagues. Some, some refer to them as the 10 judgments. But I love the fact that he's using two elderly men to do it. We know from the scriptures that Moses is 80, his brother's 83. That's who God has chosen to use. I'm looking at that story and I go, God, come on. Gotta be somebody younger. Gotta be some, somebody with a little bit more energy. I mean, these guys don't even have multi, multi, multivitamins, right? You know, they, there's nothing they can do to increase their energy. That's who God chose. He chose them and then he charged them. What did he charge them with? He gave them a commission to go before Pharaoh and say over and over again, let my people go, let my people go. And we know how the story goes, right? Pharaoh goes, no, not gonna do it, not gonna do it, not gonna do it. What's interesting is that Moses writes in here a chapter dedicated to his pedigree. And it's not, it's not boastful, it's not prideful. He basically gives his God-ordained pedigree and it's, in, it's verses 14 through 25 of this chapter where he basically gives his family tree. And the reason God inspired him to do that is because it's important for the people of Israel. And I think important for Moses to know, okay, you, you have been chosen for a reason. You've been saved for a reason. You've been commissioned for a reason and you come from pretty good stock. And so I put this in, in your notes, but this shows where he comes from. He is a descendant of Abraham and he comes from the tribe of Levi. That's important. He, he's gonna come from what will eventually become the priestly caste of Egypt. He is going to be a priest to the people of God, he and his brother. And, and God has chosen, chosen them for that reason. And he's letting him know that you have all the authority you need. See, this is the direct line back to the patriarch of the Hebrew people, and it provides an essential link to the covenant promises made to Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? I'm gonna make of you a great nation. What did he say in Genesis chapter 15? And I'm gonna do it in a place called Egypt where your people will live for 400 years, but then I'm gonna bring them out. And this guy is a descendant. And God is saying, you're the perfect person. You and your brother Aaron are the perfect person, God ordained, God chosen to do what I'm calling you to do. I love how it ends. It says, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel. It's like he's going, these are the two guys, me and my brother. We come from Abraham through the line of Levi. 
and we're the ones. We're the ones that God chose to lead the people out. Remember, he's writing this after the fact. This is history. He's writing it for the people of Israel, standing on the bank of the Jordan River, getting ready to go into the land, and he's letting them know, hey, guys, we're the ones God chose. We're the one he gave this commission. And it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. These two guys, I'm sure people looked at him and go, God, you old farts. You're God's messenger, really? I'm sure Pharaoh looked at him and went, this is the best you got, God? These two guys? And yet, they're exactly what God wanted. They're exactly what God needed. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. What they didn't know is how many times they were going to get to do this. Remember, they all rejoiced and were excited when they first got into town and the people believed and they worshiped and they thought they were leaving the next day, I'm sure. But they're gonna tell him over and over again, let my people go. But God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What does he say? I will. This is what I'm gonna do. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt, whose signs and wonders? Notice that God calls them signs and wonders, not natural phenomena. They're signs and wonders that I will multiply. He's going to do this. I, I, I desperately need you to, when you read these passages, never take your eyes off the fact that God is the all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. That's who's doing this. He says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. By great acts of judgment, I will do it this way. What does he call them? Not natural disasters, great acts of judgment. They're supernatural. They're divinely inspired and God, godly ordained. This is what he's going to do. And what does it say? And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Do you think the Egyptians would have known that he was Yahweh if algae showed up? You don't think that's happened before in Egypt? I've done some research. It happens annually. It's a regular thing. Do uh, you don't think it's hailed there? Yes, it's hailed there before. You don't think they have a problem with locusts? Yes, they've had locust infestations regularly. Do you don't think flies are a problem? Yes, flies are a problem. So they needed to see something that was different than what they normally see, and it's these great acts of judgment done by God. The Egyptians shall know when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. See, there's a gap. You're going to go tell, I'm going to release, but there's some things that are going to happen in between. What are they? Ten plagues. Ten great acts of God that he's going to do so that the Egyptians shall know. Remember what Pharaoh said initially to this guy when Moses and Aaron showed up. Who is the Lord Yahweh? Who's this guy that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord Yahweh, and moreover, I'll not let Israel go. I don't know this God. Guess what, Pharaoh? You're going to get to know him. You're going to get to know this Yahweh in a really incredible way. So here's what I love. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. You're very familiar with this story. Almost too familiar. And so we're going to look at it in a little bit different light because this is not the first time this has happened, right? When God called Moses in the wilderness back in chapter 4, he basically had him do this same trick, the same sign, the same wonder. 
He said, take your staff, throw it down, and it turned into a snake. Then he said, pick it up by the tail, which I'm sure he hesitated. But he eventually did, and it turned back into a staff. He's going to get to do it again, but a little bit differently. It says, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Same, same sign done in a different setting by a different guy. Here's what's going on. It, it, this sign is now for Pharaoh and not for Moses. The one back in chapter four was for Moses. This one's for Pharaoh. See, he's been told to do it before, but now God's making some adjustments that Moses done know, didn't know about. And I've never looked at this passage and seen this before. But again, it's different than when I wrote this back in January, February. So I've had a lot of time to read and study and, and think. And, and here, here's something that, that's really jumped out at me that I think is highly significant to this passage. All of these chapters, Exodus 4, 1 through 5, compared to Exodus 7, 8 through 12. One takes place in the Midian wilderness, right? When he was a shepherd and he comes to the base of the mountain and God appears in a burning bush and he tells him to take your staff, throw it down, turns into a snake, pick it up by the tail, turns back into a rod. What happens in Pharaoh's court is going to be a little bit different. In Exodus 4, it's Moses' staff. In Exodus 7, it's Aaron's staff. Both threw it down, right? They, they're told by God to throw down their staff and God brings them to life. And when we read the passage, your translation is probably not much different than mine. It says, they turned into a serpent. Moses ran. It scared the snot out of him. Pharaoh just goes, hey, magicians, make some more snakes. You know, he, he just basically, he's, he's unfazed by it. It doesn't bother him. He just says, hey, show your stuff. You make some more. Moses believed, but Pharaoh refused. Pharaoh wasn't impressed. So what's, what's going on in the story? They, they sound similar but what, what is really happening? And this is where you have to dig a little bit deeper and you have to look at the words that are used because words are important. See, what I see in this chapter seven story is something that Moses and Aaron didn't expect. I think when he said, throw down your staff, what were they thinking? Oh, I've been here before. Throw down my staff, it's gonna turn into a snake. Boy, he's in for a shock. Pharaoh's gonna be shocked. Is that what's going on here? See, here's what you... you I guarantee nobody in the room has noticed before because I never noticed it before. In Exodus 4, it says Moses' staff became a nahash. That's, that's the typical Hebrew word for snake. In chapter 7, Aaron's staff became a tanin. Totally different word. Totally different word. And it's a word that means something totally different. Why didn't Moses use a different word? And why do our translations translate them as the same word? Because we're thinking in the sense that, well, in chapter four, it turned into a snake. It must be a snake here. And that second word that we're looking at sometimes can be translated that way, but it most typically is translated as dragon or sea monster. All throughout the Old Testament, it's always dragon or sea monster. And yet in this passage, we change it to serpent because it seems to make sense. He did it in chapter four. It must be the same thing again, but see, God works differently in different occasions. It's the Hebrew word for crocodile. I, I sent you in the email this week a, a, an article written by a gentleman that goes into greater detail, and he's not the only one who's gone down this path. And, and the more I've studied it, the more I looked at it, I, I believe this is what's happening. Why? Why would I believe that? Why would God turn it into a snake in the wilderness for Moses? Because snakes were prevalent in the wilderness in Midian. He was familiar with snakes, and he showed him a snake. And how did he respond to that? 
It scared him. Now he's where? He's in the court of Pharaoh. What are prevalent in Egypt? Crocodiles. And, and Pharaoh has a cobra on his head, headdress. He's not afraid of snakes. They, they actually worship snakes. They actually worship crocodiles too. But I think I would, I would fear a crocodile more than a snake. Okay? And so what I think is going on here is God is sending a message to who? Not to Moses, but to Pharaoh. I love this. Ezekiel 29.3 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, the great dragon, Tanin, that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Here's, here's again, the Old Testament, helping us understand the Old Testament, that this is a reference, I believe, to a crocodile and not a snake. And you go, what's the difference? It's all the difference in the world, guys, because the great dragon is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is closely associated with a god called Sobek. He later became Sobek Ray. Ray was the sun god, and they blended the two together. He's the god of the Nile, and this is what he looked like. There's statues of him. Human body, head of a crocodile. He's considered the creator god. Isn't that significant? Who's, who's our creator god? Yahweh. Who's their creator god? Sobek Ray. He's the symbol of Pharaoh's potency and power. I don't know if you can see it, but on that globe above his head, that's supposed to be the world, and on, on the front of it is a cobra. Th those two things are closely linked together. So why is this important? Why is this significant? Because he says, Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent, but I believe it became a crocodile. And, and what's interesting is that Pharaoh go, tells his wise men, his magicians, to do the same thing, and they, they turn their staffs into what? Crocodiles. And then the crocodile of Aaron eats theirs. See, this is their God. This is their primary God. And God is showing, not only am I greater than your God, because I can make your God, I can also consume your God. I, I am the God. I'm the creator God. It says, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He still didn't believe. He still didn't recognize Yahweh. He still didn't know Yahweh as the one true God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to water. And I want you to turn the Nile water into blood. And this is where we get into all these, these plagues that are going to happen. But look at how it starts. It starts with a, a confrontation between Pharaoh and God Almighty. And he has... Aaron, throw down his rod, and it turns into a crocodile, which eats the crocodiles of Pharaoh, and then he picks it back up. There's no reference in the passage that says he did, but I believe he picked it up by the tail, and it turned back into a rod, and he walked his way. Because what's important here is, is this verse, this verse 15. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a dragon, and I want you to strike the water. I want you to take the God of the Nile... I turned that staff into the God of the Nile. Now I want you to strike the Nile and I want you to turn it into blood. I want you to destroy all life in that body of water. So by this, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, the staff with a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water. Guys, I, I, I just got to get you to understand that your God is a great God. Because what happens? It literally turns to blood. That's what it says. The fish in the Nile die. The Nile begins to stink. 
from the blood, the putrefying blood, but also from all the dead fish bobbing on the top of the water. This is a miracle that God has done. This is God doing what only God can do, and he, he basically turns all the drinking water in Egypt to blood. This is not a natural phenomenon, and it's done so that they shall know, and he's just beginning because he's drawn the battle lines, and he's going to begin to do all these plagues. Sobek's no match for God, and neither the gods of Egypt. I've put in your uh, notes a chart, and I put this together just knowing that I wasn't going to go through all of these plagues, but it, it'll tell you every plague, the passage associated with it, all the gods of Egypt that are directly attacked by virtue of this plague. And I encourage you to go read that. Just look at it. The bottom line is God is showing himself to be the one true God. It's really not an attack on the gods of Egypt because there are no gods of Egypt. They don't exist. It's a wake-up call to the people of Egypt that those gods are irrelevant because they don't exist. So I encourage you to go look at this chart and spend some time thinking about how this shows us that God is the one true God. See, God's at work. Nobody's a match for God. Nobody out there in, the, in our culture, no scientist, no philosopher, no politician, no military force on the planet is a match for God. See, I love this. Some CFD Mool says, God is represented in the Bible as revealing himself in his actions and in his designs. It's in history that God's designs is most, most, mostly to be, be perceived. And this is how he chooses to reveal himself. Ultimately, revelation, God revealing himself is in relationship. That's important. God wants to reveal himself to you in relationship, not just in the scriptures. He wants it to be true in your life. See, he says confrontation and communion are the ways that he reveals himself. It can either be one way, confrontation or communion, but it's not just through communication of facts. See, I could teach you about the plagues and you would be all knowing about the plagues and you walk away not really knowing God. I want you to know God. And I want you to know God through communion rather than confrontation. I don't want you to fight God. I want you to understand that God loves you and has a plan for you because he's chosen to reveal himself to you. Jay Mullenberger says, God was the Lord, the King, the judge of history. The Exodus salvation showed an enduring purpose of God that gave hope in desperate times. God delivered Israel because he was initiating his purpose in history through his people. He's still doing it. Now, we're probably not going to live to see anything like this, but it doesn't mean God can't or God won't or God will. We know that he's going to do some pretty significant judgments in the end times, greater than these. And we have to believe that because we have to believe that our God, if he can do it then, he can do it in the future. Our God is still all-powerful, and he's the same God as the God of Moses. So here's your first question. God can either show up in communion or confrontation why would we ever choose the latter? Why do we love to do battle with God? Why do we choose to fight God when we can get to know him better through communion? How do we stop doing that? How, how can we stop fighting with God and choose to do it through communion with God? I just wanna see you work in my life and I'm gonna stop fighting against you in my life. What are some of the false gods of this world that are powerless before the one true God? And if they're powerless, why do we still worry about them? What are the gods that our world worships? What are the gods that we worship other than God? And why do we worry so much about them? Finally, why must we cling to our belief in the spiritual and supernatural in a world where reason and rationality rule all? Why is that so important? And I truly believe it is. 
Father, thank you for these men. I pray that as they talk around the tables that you would use these words, use these passages, use the idea of your power to encourage us that we have nothing to worry about. There's nothing too great for you. There's no God out there that's going to defeat you. There's no political party that's going to thwart you. There's nothing that can stand against you. And yet we worry constantly. Father, would you help us to see that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-capable of carrying out your will for our lives and for this world, and you will and you are. Help us to see that. Help us to rest in it. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.